Well, <clears throat> we're all very familiar with our mission statement, I'm sure. I'm tempted to throw a pop quiz and I just ask someone to recite it, but I won't do that. But the mission statement that we, that we try to, one of the ways that we try to anchor ourselves says this. It says, we exist to magnify God. It should be on your handout, okay? So I guess you could have passed any pop quiz I gave you. We exist to magnify God and to spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and then shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life and all that is as it's regulated by the Word of God. Today we're going to be beginning a series together and it's designed to help us understand and apply what it means to make and then to shepherd disciples, which really are, are two prongs of the Great Commission, right? We help people become followers of Christ and then we help them follow Christ all the better. You go and you make disciples and you teach them to observe all that he has commanded you. Those are all just synonymous ideas. So the focus of this series, though, for the next uh, nine or ten weeks is going to be specifically on having intentional biblical relationships and conversations out of those relationships with one another for the sake of sanctifying change, okay? Uh, you could get a little bit technical and say, well, we're going to be talking about biblical counseling, and in some ways, yes, but that has some, some connotations and, and um, certain feels to it that we want to avoid. We want to weave these concepts into just the very fabric of our relationships, the very fabric of our, of our lives together as a church body, so we, we want to think of it in, under the heading and the idea of just discipleship and change. All right, we're going to look over the next course of the weeks, we're going to look at a whole spectrum, a whole breadth of topics within that idea of discipleship and change. We're going to look at who's involved in this process. We're going to look at what are some competing worldviews when you approach this process. What is the process of biblical change? Uh, the practical things like how to, how to listen to one another and how to ask good questions of one another so that those, um, those topics and those conversations can really have some meat to them and have some, some impact to them. And we're also going to look at what it really looks like to equip someone for growth. Maybe someone comes and says, look, I, I have no idea how to grow. Well, how do you, how do you uh, help them grow? How do you intentionally equip yourself to grow? So that's kind of a, a brief snapshot of where we'll be going in the weeks ahead. But before we dive into those topics, we need to lay some groundwork today. All right, we need to establish a common understanding of what it is to be a disciple and then what it is to be a disciple who's helping other disciples and why it matters within the church. Has everybody gotten a handout? Raise your hand if you don't have a handout and you would like one. Can we get a couple of those up here? Particularly for the back left group of irresponsible high schoolers that should know better. Come on, guys. So, to get that kind of 
groundwork then, we need to ask ourselves, first off, what is a disciple? What, what does that word mean, right? Because a lot of the times it can be thrown around um, just sort of as a term, but then not necessarily understood. So raise your hand again if you need a handout. Um, Mike's got some. All right, I think we're okay. So what is a disciple? The, if, you, if you just look it up on dictionary.com, you get the, this that is generally defined as a person who is a pupil or an adherent of the doctrines of another, a follower, specifically defined as a follower of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for disciple is mathetes, okay, and it's, it's imbued with the sense of a learner. Now, in our culture and in our times, we often, especially even just more and more so with the advent of online learning and all that kind of thing, we are often, we associate learning with a very independent kind of self-initiated, self-regulated idea of learning. Learning from self, in a way. Learning as done by yourself. But this word for disciple of a learner, mathetes, this word has, has direct connections with a source of learning. Okay, that is, there is no learner without a teacher. There's no disciple without a master. And the, the, the definition then of who you are as a disciple is bound up within who the teacher, within who the master is. And so we're thinking mostly in terms of disciples in Jesus' context, but the concept was not unique to him. It's used of followers of John the Baptist, of the Pharisees, and others as well. So it's just, it's just a learner, a follower of a particular master or a teacher. Let's look at some examples. If you look in John 1, 35... We'll see, we'll see how the, disciple, the term disciple was not unique to those following Jesus. So in John 1 verse 35, it says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist had, was standing there with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So John's two disciples heard him speak, zoop, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. See, they're, they're avidly in the business of following and learning a teacher. And they're rapidly abandoning their, their teacher for a new teacher. They said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. All right, look, uh, look over in Acts chapter 9. Paul himself, even post-Jesus, had disciples. Acts chapter 9, we'll start looking at verse 25, uh, 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall lowering him in a large basket. So John had disciples. John had people who were following him and seeking to learn from him. Paul had disciples, people who were following him, seeking to learn from him. Then let's look in Mark chapter 2. Cue the ominous music. 
Even the Pharisees had disciples. And there's a reason for ominous music at that point in time, because as we're going to learn, the, the relationship behind, between a disciple and his teacher is such that it sets the tone for really the rest of that person's life. So if you're a disciple of the Pharisees, then that sets the tone for the rest of your life. So Mark chapter 2, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But what's interesting is they come and they pose a question about John's disciples and then about the Pharisees' disciples, but they're not asking Jesus' disciples. They don't walk up to Jesus' disciples and say, hey, how come you're not fasting? They walk up to Jesus and say, hey, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And the reason that they do that is because of the relationship between a disciple and the master. The follower and the teacher is such that the, the teacher, the master, has ultimate responsibility and, and authority over what this person does because of the extent to which a disciple follows the master. So they could just skip right over the disciples and say, well, hey, he's the master, so of course he is the one who is guiding their lives. He is the one who is guiding their decisions. He is the one who is guiding their choices. And so they just skip those disciples and go straight to Jesus and say, you're the one who's supposed to be teaching these guys. So if they're not fasting, you are either failing in your responsibility to teach them to fast, or you're actually teaching them that there's something different at hand. Okay, because there's that kind of a relationship between the disciple and the master. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that mathetes, this Greek word for disciple, always implies the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life. Okay, I really want to try to make sure we all have out of our minds any sort of online academic learning in my pajamas kind of mentality of being a disciple or a learner in the Christian context. This word for being a disciple always implies the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of one described as mathetes, disciple, and which in its particularity leaves no doubt as to who is deploying the formative power. It's just, they're just basically saying there is no doubt who the master is. Because of the overall scope and depth of impact of the master, there's no doubt about who the master is because of the impact, the imprint that the master has on the disciple. And then he cites the verse that we just read. It says there's a good example in Mark 2, verse 18. The disciples of John the Baptist, the Mathetai, the disciples of John the Baptist, and those of the Pharisees on the one side... And the Mathetai, the disciples of Jesus on the other, are distinguished by the fact that the former of the John the Baptist and the, and the Pharisees exercise the pious discipline of fasting while the latter do not. And it is in full keeping with the situation if, in seeking the reasons for the conduct, conduct of the disciples of Jesus, 
Reference is made not to them, but to Jesus, like we just talked about. Because he is regarded as the head of the school. G. Campbell Morgan describes the image of discipleship this way. It is that of a teacher, himself possessing full knowledge, bending over a pupil, and for a set purpose, with an end in view, imparting knowledge step by step, point by point, ever working on toward a definite end. That conception includes also the true ideal of our position. We are not casual listeners, neither are we merely interested hearers desiring information. We are disciples looking toward and desiring the same end as the master. And therefore, listening to every word, marking every inflection of voice that carries meaning, and applying all our energy to realizing the teacher's purpose for us. Such is the ideal. All right, so this idea of discipleship, right? We have to understand what is a disciple before we can understand discipleship. It's more than just knowledge. It's more than just get your degree in being a disciple of Jesus and then you've checked off the box, okay? It's more than just facts or theories. It's life. The relationship between a disciple and a master is a relationship in which knowledge is imparted Okay, so that is a part of it. Knowledge is imparted, but, but lifestyle is imitated. Goals are shaped and shared within this relationship. Ethics are formed by this relationship. Expectations are laid out and adhered to. Heart motives and desires are fashioned and then instilled and that's what a disciple is. And if we're Christians, then we're disciples of Christ, as opposed to disciples of, of Buddha or Joseph Smith or Eckhart Tolle or whoever, okay? If we're Christians, then we are disciples of Christ. We are those with that kind of a relationship with Jesus, where we seek to learn from him, where we seek to imitate him, where we seek to allow our goals to be shaped and informed and formed by him. Our ethics are informed by him. Our expectations are given by him to us. Our hearts and desires are conformed to his. That's what we are as disciples. And then we seek to make disciples. Okay? We seek to take people who are followers of self, who uh, followers of worldly philosophies, followers of idolatrous living and pagan deities, etc., etc. We seek to take those people and make them followers, disciples of Christ. And that's why our mission statement says we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples. But it doesn't stop there. We also say that we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. So we're disciples, and as disciples, we also shepherd other disciples. And we practice discipleship, or some people would say discipling. And what is that? Okay, in a nutshell... You're going to hear Pastor Rick say this as well. It's spiritual friendship. It's friendship based on a spiritual commonality and direction. Okay? That direction is towards Christ, 
who is the sum and substance of that spiritual bond. So discipleship could be viewed as purposeful friendship that does spiritual good to someone so that he or she will look more like Christ. Discipleship can be viewed as purposeful friendship that does spiritual good to someone so that he or she will look more like Christ. Because that's the goal of being a disciple, right? At least biblically speaking, that is the goal of being a disciple. So if you think you're a disciple who doesn't want to look or doesn't care about looking like Christ, you're not a disciple. Because a disciple follows the master. A disciple seeks to be like the master. And so then in exercising discipleship, we seek to come alongside one another and exert purposeful friendship within the confines of that spiritual commonality and do one another good so that we get one step closer to looking more like the master, one step closer to following more, um, more, more closely to the master. That's the goal of a disciple. So my goal as a disciple is to look, walk, think, feel, desire, smell, taste, and sound like Jesus. And then my goal in discipling others is to help them look, think, desire, feel, smell, taste, walk, look like Jesus. Discipleship is not a program, okay? It's, it, it can be helped and facilitated by a program, but discipleship in and of itself is not defined as a program, okay? Neither is it just, neither is it, is it confined and, and constrained to just a discipleship ministry. Well, what are you involved in? Well, I'm involved in the ministry of ushering, okay? I'm involved in the ministry of music, great. Well, I'm involved in the ministry of discipling. It's, it's, not, it's not a self-contained unit, like I said before, we want, we want these things to be woven in through the fabric of, of our life as a church body, such that as we are ushering, as we are doing music, as we are teaching, as we are throwing mulch around the planters, as we are bringing a meal to one another, as we are whatever, you name it. As we're doing those things, we seek to exercise purposeful spiritual good to one another so that as a result of bumping into one another, we look a little bit more like Jesus. And that's discipleship. Helping each other to, to follow Christ. And you can disciple, you can practice discipleship through any and all of the, the, the ministries and the programs that we may come across. It's also not like, a, like some sort of 12-step procedure. You know, okay, well, I'm on discipleship level three. Ooh, well, I'm on level 11. And next fall, I'm going to graduate, and I am done. It's, it's, not, it's not that way. Because you're only done with the process of being a disciple, of, of discipleship. You're only done with that when you look like Christ in fullness and in totality, which isn't going to be done until you're in heaven. So... That'd be a whole lot of steps, okay? But it's not, it's not a step procedure that we're involved in. It's also not relegated to the spiritual elite. We kind of think sometimes that, that discipleship is reserved for 
you know, well, those who have graduated from the discipleship program, for those who have, have demonstrated a, um, a particular knack for discipling. And so, man, they are just so grounded. They are so mature. And they've been around that block so many times that they, they're the disciplers. Well, no. It's not relegated to an elite. It's something that is, is bound up within the nature of being a Christian no matter what stage of maturity you're at. So discipleship is the process of growing in the likeness of Christ and helping others do that as well. Think about that. What is, what is involved in the likeness of Christ? You got, you got character. Just thinking about, about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We have character. Study the character of Jesus and seek to live that out in your life. That's being a disciple. We have obedience because he's the master. And the disciple does what the master says because the disciple knows that the master has an end game in mind and he's bringing his disciples along in the whole process so that the end game comes to fruition. I like, I love the end game that Jesus has in mind, which is, which is sanctification and growth now and ultimately perfection in heaven with him forever. There is no better end game than that. But it requires obedience to get there. It requires obedience along that process for him to actually be able to accomplish that purpose within us. It requires devotion. I mean, Jesus was the perfect example of that as well. And so devotion to the Father, devotion to God's will, and so if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to exercise devotion. We need to, to seek that and cultivate that and encourage that in one another. Servanthood. I mean, the more, the more and more that I learn about my Savior, the more struck that I am by the example of humility and servanthood that He is. Philippians 2 just screams in my head all the time, look at your Savior who, was, who didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of man and, 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 and to the point of death and even dying on a cross. So a disciple who's following his master, following his Savior, wants to be like him, then says, okay, I'm going to be a servant. And I'm going to cultivate humility. But you can't be a disciple and say, I don't care about that. Because you're saying, I don't care about Jesus, which means you're saying, I don't care about my master, which means you're not a disciple. Because by very definition, a disciple follows eagerly, zealously, avidly for the sake of becoming like the master. Okay. So, purity. Purity is, is a part of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. There was no sin found in him. We're commanded to be holy as he is holy. 
And so if we don't care about that, then we're, then we're defying the very definition of what it is to be a disciple. Because as a disciple, we look at our Savior and we say, man, He is pure. He is holy. I'm going to strive for that. And, and brother, sister, I'm going to help you strive for that as well. And that's discipleship. And remember, Christian was a term given to the disciples by outsiders as they watched and observed the life of the believers and said, man, they, they talk a lot about this Christos person. They talk a lot about him. They follow him. They do what he says. They, they, they worship him. Their, their lives exuded Christness as his disciples in such a way that people said they're Christians. Okay, so just in the very, the very sense of the name, and we, that should still hold true today as we seek to imitate our Savior and encourage others to do the same thing. Now, <clears throat> the notion of discipleship takes place on two different levels. I think you'd agree most of the time the idea of discipleship is relegated to a book study, you know, with one or two people, preferably at a coffee shop with good coffee, and you meet at least on an every other week basis. Because outside of that, maybe it's not really discipleship. Okay, that's kind of what goes through my head when you think of like the typical just understanding of discipleship. And, and that's a very, that's an excellent way to practice that. But it rightly belongs in the realm of individual discipleship. And that's an emphasis, that's a focus. Okay, but we don't, want, we don't want to get too pigeonholed by, by the cultural context of ideas. We want to understand just really the, the biblical intent and practice of it. So I want, I want to also broaden your thinking to just recognizing that if you want discipleship, there is corporate discipleship that goes on as well. See, sometimes people will say, ah, you know, I don't really, I don't really want the church. I don't really need the church. I just need... I just need me and my buddy at Starbucks for discipleship. And, and that is discipleship, but that's individual discipleship because if, if being a disciple is what we've talked about and then practicing discipleship is what we've talked about, then there is a corporate discipleship that we need to value and we need to treasure and we need to seek as well. Okay? Rick or whoever else preaches is exercising discipleship on us as a corporate body as they, seek, as they seek to do a spiritual good so that we look walking out of here more like the Savior, so that our hearts are tweaked, that our thinking is adjusted, that our affections are enlarged, that our lifestyle is changed to look more like Christ. That's corporate discipleship. I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to help you follow Christ more closely. We do it when we sing together. Church discipline is a form of corporate discipleship. Church discipline is designed for the body to exercise that discipleship upon one person, but it's also designed to admonish and to correct and to warn and to shape the, the, the church body as a whole. So there's both an individual, but then there's also a corporate discipleship that we need to understand and value both of those things. 
It happens during Sunday school classes, during times of singing, someone sharing a testimony, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the focus of the series that we're embarking on is going to be on equipping you at an individual level, okay? I just wanted to kind of boost your appreciation of the other for a moment. The focus of the series is going to be on an individual level and, and equipping you at that individual level to do one another discipleship. That is, practicing purposeful spiritual friendship with one another so that you end up looking more like Christ. But why does it matter? Why can't we just be content with sort of the large-scale corporate stuff? You don't want to cast aside the corporate discipleship, but neither should you be content with just the exercise of corporate discipleship. It matters because of two things. And first is obedience. First is the matter of individual obedience. There's a, a number of commands in the Bible that include the phrase, one another. I know we throw that phrase around a lot. The one another's say, the one another's this. I do this because of the one another's. And sometimes people kind of go, what, what, what are these one another's you're talking about? The one another's are just simple commands in the Bible that are given to disciples, to followers of Christ, saying, practice, do this, exercise this to and amongst one another in the midst of church life. Let's look at a sampling of them. Okay, James chapter 5. Uh, there is no James 5.26. So just go ahead and scratch that out and put 16. And the next verse we're going to look at is in Hezekiah chapter 2. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. There, there is a one another. An example of something that we're to do in the midst of corporate life together. We're to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, specifically regarding those issues. First Thessalonians, go, go, go over there. I'm really hoping that there is a chapter 5. Yes, good. And a verse 11, good. First Thessalonians 5, verse 11. It says, therefore, encourage one another. And it's always tempting to go back and say, well, why and what? But the, the, my point is to show you the one another's. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. See, those in Thessalonians were tempted to be discouraged by death. So Paul is saying, take this truth and don't... Uh, well, what he's not saying is just, hey, well, they'll get over it. He's saying, look, if, if someone in the body is discouraged, take this truth and encourage one another with it and build one another up with it. That's the one another's. First, uh, just flip back a, a few verses, for chapter 4, verse 18. It says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. The same, the same idea, the same concept. 
of, of death and, and the return of Christ. Um, and there, he's saying, look, when you're experiencing discouragement or hardship, then as, as disciples come around that disciple and encourage and comfort and build up. In Galatians 6, 2. We'll start in verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See, these are the one another's. But what you have to understand is that they're commands. The master has given commands to his disciples and a command, by nature of being a command, is meant to be obeyed. So if there's a command to confess your sins, and you never confess your sins to one another, if, if in our kind of American independent pride we say, Psh, I can just deal with this on my own, I don't need to, to, to do that, then, then that's disobedience. If we never exercise encouragement... To someone who, who, who looks like they're discouraged, if someone needs comfort and we don't provide that and we're just, you know, I, that's, that's just not me. I'm more of a, you know, I'm more of a hands-on, you know, I'll, I'll fix the wall kind of guy. That's disobedience. Because Jesus says, bear one another's burdens. Jesus says, comfort one another. And he doesn't isolate it to the people who, who like to provide comfort. He doesn't isolate it to the, the empathetic, sensitive musician types. He just says, you all, y'all, if you are a disciple, then these are the things that we need to be doing. And this is discipleship. Colossians 3, 16 says, teach and admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 says, seek the good of one another. Hebrews 10, 23 says, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stimulate, a.k.a. give them a quick kick. Come on, man, let's go. You see this love, this, this good deed that's before you? Do it. We should be doing that to one another because we are disciples who follow a master who has given us a command to do these things. So it's, it's an issue of obedience on one hand, okay? All those things, they're just a sampling. They have direct bearing on helping one another look like Jesus, right? Disciples helping other disciples be more like their master. That's one another discipleship, and it's not optional, it's their commands requiring obedience, and it's part of being a disciple. But, but beyond individual obedience is the matter of identity. And this is a corporate identity. This is ecclesiology, okay? We're all part of a church. What is a church? It's not this building. It's not the chairs. It's not the programs. You know, it's, it's, it's this whole deal. Here is a church and the steeple, and look, there's the people. The church is the people, Okay? And the people are gathered together in a spiritual corporate identity that is crucial for our thinking. Okay? 
again, in our individualistic society, it's super hard to think as biblically and as um, practically as I think is necessary because we are so prone to think, well, you know, I got, I got, I got me, myself, and I, and I don't need anybody else. You know, I'll pick myself up by my financial bootstraps and I'll carry on, and I will pick myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and I'll carry on. But look, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 12. First Corinthians 12, 12. He references this in Ephesians as well, but time is short. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For, and he's talking to, he's talking to a church, he's saying, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? There would be no body. It would just be a giant finger walking around. Sorry, editorializing. Edit, editorializing. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Verse 20, but now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. His imagery is so vivid. But how often do we press that into our our living here? Right To literally say, I cannot look, we cannot look around and say, we have no need of you. Because you know what? You're just an eyebrow or whatever. There is a need for every part of the body that has been placed by God into the body. And a body part cannot say to another part, I have no need of you. Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body, and individually, 
members of it. Okay? That's the reality. That's the identity that at Mission Road, we are Christ's body and individually members of a unified spiritual whole designed by God in such a way that there's no way to say, hey, we don't have need of you. Hey, we don't care about you. Fine, go by the wayside. It's okay. No skin off my nose. Like, none of, none of that applies. But instead, each member is to have the same care for one another such that if any member, my fingernail, my head, my elbow, if any of it suffers, then the rest of the body cares for that suffering, that, that suffering member. And if any member rejoices, then all the members rejoice with it. So we're more than a bunch of individuals who meet up once a week for some music and a speech. Okay, we are a unified entity joined by supernatural means through common faith in a risen Savior. Which, which is why the church in the, in, the, in the New Testament times was such a flabbergasting thing. Which is why in Ephesians it's referred to as something that demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God. And that's because Jews and Gentiles in those days would have zero reason to hang out together. But God brought them together. And he said, as my disciples, I'm unifying you into a unified body of which I am the head. And so I don't care if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're part of a, the same body that cares for one another just as my eye is not going to say, hey, foot, I don't care. That'd be stupid of my eye to say that. Right? Because, because I am a unified whole that, that when a part of me suffers, the rest of me knows that it's suffering and tries to do something about it. I'm getting too old for Ascend Camp. I come back, and the next morning, my upper back is all like whack and out of, out of alignment and, and those types of things. Um, you know what? Other parts of my body were doing stuff to compensate, tightening up, uh, helping to support. And, and it took me all of about 90 minutes to schedule a chiropractor appointment and go take care of my upper back, right? Because I'm not going to say, eh, it's just my upper back. My feet are good. My brain's okay. You know, his, his, his picture is almost ridiculous when you press it out, but that's why. As ridiculous as that would be, it is just as ridiculous for us to say, A, I don't need the rest of the body, or B, I'm not really a part of the rest of the body, or C, to say the whole body doesn't really need that part and doesn't care about that part. Because the spiritual reality is what we just talked about. Now, again, sometimes that's hard to, 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 to really wrap your mind around, and I, I encourage you, meditate on that and pray about that. I know, I know it has been a, a stage growth for me. In stages is what I mean. It's been a matter of growing in stages of my appreciation for this concept. 
uh, of my, of my, and I still have so much growth to do, of being able to look at every person in a church body and say, you know what, I'm going to look at you through the eyes of Jesus in terms of how he values you, how, what he has done for you, and how he has brought us together. And then I'm going to treat you accordingly. That, that did not, that did not, it doesn't, it doesn't come necessarily right away because it, it fights against everything that is in our society. But, but think about that and pray about that and meditate on that and see how it impacts your thinking and your action. But we're a unified entity joined by supernatural means through common faith in a risen Savior. We're not joined by race, economic status, geographic location, although somewhat. That's not the, the overarching commonality. We're not joined by hobbies. We're not joined by affinity for a particular brand of car. We're not joined by, you name it. We're not even joined by, you know, like Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the specific struggle of, of commonality that joins those groups of people together. We are joined by a supernatural unifying influence of the work of Christ and being disciples of Christ. And so as a body, we're to be concerned with the health of the body as a whole as well as the individual's. If your finger is starting to fester with infection, you don't just say, eh, I got nine more. If your leg is broken, you don't just limp along excited that you have two arms. You seek the health of the body. You're concerned with the health of the body, and we're all responsible for the health of the body. Verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. I'm going to read a quote to you from this book called Life in the Body of Christ by Curtis Thomas. Um, helpful, good resources. It's uh, just a bunch of practical chapters about what it means to be part of a church body. It's like three pages per chapter, just very very distilled ideas. I want to read you what he says about being a part of the body. He says, one of the best known but perhaps the least appreciated representations of the church is as a body. And we as members of that body. That pictures a cohesive whole, active living organism. Unfortunately, in our times, individualism seems to have taken over our society and has also crept into our churches at an alarming rate. Gone seem to be the days when members of local churches felt a serious obligation to the church body as a whole. Years ago, the church was looked upon as one's family. If any part of the family, the body, suffered, then all suffered. Sounds like 1 Corinthians. If any part was in need, the family came together with open hands and hearts. If any had abundance, it was shared among the family. If anyone was hurting, then all hurt. And when one rejoiced, all rejoiced. Sounds like 1 Corinthians. When any part of our physical body hurts, our whole body sympathizes with that part. If one's foot is sore, the leg and the hip compensate for it and protect it. If any disease occurs, the immune system throughout the body gathers its forces to fight the intruder. Furthermore, the hand does not say to the knee, I don't like you, so I'm going to ignore you or get you out of my sight. 
The finger does not say to the eye, I do not like your looks, so I'm going to gouge you out. Nor does the foot say to the ear, I don't really need you, so I'm going to walk anywhere I want to, despite the warning sounds you are hearing. The throat does not say to the taste buds, you may be tasting something awful, but I'm going to swallow whatever I want. I don't need to listen to your advice. Unfortunately, members of the body of Christ often act in such foolish, selfish ways. God never intended it to be that way in his body. Just as he designed our physical bodies to work harmoniously together, so he has designed his church body to build each other up, to love each other, to listen to each other, to care for each other, and to protect each other. And this requires that we give up part of our individualism when we become a part of Christ's church, and especially when we join a local congregation. First and foremost, our chief concern should be the good, the good of the body at large rather than our own personal tastes and preferences. It means that we become a part of a family of believers and that we take our family responsibilities seriously. Their interests become more important than our own, Philippians 2. When a disease appears, perhaps false teaching, unrepentant sins, doubts, discouragement, we bring all of our gifts, talents, and resources to bear to help solve the problem. When a brother or sister is in a financial calamity, our resources become theirs. When a member falls into some serious, sudden sin, we are to patiently restore him rather than attacking, vilifying, or disparaging him behind his back. Someone has said that Christians are the only army that shoots its wounded. When the body as a whole becomes sick or injured, we don't run off, but rather we try to find the source of the malady and apply the appropriate remedy. So beyond this, the church we have to remember is not just anybody. It's, it's the body of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, He is the head and we are the body. So if you love the Savior, you'll recognize that you're a part of His body and, and we will prioritize its health and growth as He prioritizes it. And both corporate discipleship and one another discipleship are vital tools he's given to the church for the sake of its growth and its health. And so the next nine weeks, I believe, is going to be just fleshing that out. What does it mean to live in that sort of relationship with one another? What does it mean, and how can we be purposeful about growing within ourselves the ability, but then also practice and exercise that one anothering life? How can we be intentional about it? How can we equip ourselves to not just sort of hope we get it right, but to pursue it and to be ready for it and, and then to practice it? 